This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast. So glad to have you joining us. So glad to be hearing from so many of you about books you like and have considered and have read, or at least listened to the show and gotten the Cliff Notes version. So that's what this podcast is all about, is trying to encourage people to go a little deeper than their newsfeed and read serious books uh, for self-improvement, but also so that we can all be better engaged and better informed out there in this uh, grim marketplace of ideas in which we find ourselves. So that said, a couple of weeks ago, Ryan McMakin and I covered... Uh, Rothbard's Anatomy of the State. And people who've been listening to the show know that last year we got through Man, Economy, and State, which was several shows, and I promised that we would tackle some of the smaller Rothbard books this year. And we're going to do just that today by getting into an unbelievable little primer on money that he penned originally in 1963 called What Has Government Done to Our Money? This is just a fantastic little book. It's about 119 pages. We have it free online at Mises.org in both HTML and PDF formats. The little paperback, I think we sell for 3 or $5. Uh, the hardcover, we might sell for about $10. i will have to go check that. But if anybody needs this book, ping me, find me on Twitter, send me a message. I'll make sure we get it out to you. And I thought there'd be nobody better as a guest for this particular show than our great friend Bob Murphy, uh, most of you are already familiar with Bob. You've probably read his book, Choice, which is, in, in a sense, an encapsulation of Mises' human action. Uh, he's you know, an economist, a blogger, a podca podcast host on his own. But uh, more importantly, perhaps for our purposes, is he has been writing a serial book at Mises.org called Understanding Money Mechanics. And that's been coming out in chapter form. We're getting very close to the end of that book, and we're going to release it as a separate standalone book when it's done, both in online format for free, and also I think we're going to make that into a physical book. So with all that said, uh, Bob, welcome. Happy Friday to you. Great to hear from you. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. And as always, I applaud you for these deep dives. This isn't just, uh, you know, this latest soundbite. This is some deep stuff you're getting into. Boy, I'll tell you what, Rothbard has an uncanny ability to pack a lot into a small book. And what I was noticing when I went through this last night is that when I say it's a primer of sorts on money or a mini course in and of itself on money, you know, he doesn't refer to a lot of technical or uh, historical economics at all. Uh, he, you know, he really doesn't refer to Mises or Menger. Uh, in in the bulk of this book, you know, so he's he's writing this book, I think, very much for a broad audience that doesn't want to get bogged down. Well, I think you're right, and I think his title is is just perfect. You know, like in other words, when I was younger, I remember like trying to hand things out to people like who wanted to read. Just what has government done to our money? I mean, just the very title. He's he's showing that he's talking to the regular person. You know, it's not saying what do economists have to say about Fed policy or something like that. Yeah, and of course, in the early 1960s, when he's writing this, he is not yet fully uh, the political radical, perhaps, that he would become. But what's interesting, what struck me is that the the, the number of libertarians or free market-oriented people who believe in a free market in money is broader than the number of libertarians or free market people who believe in a free market in defense or judicial services or policing. In other words, there's the Hayekians. There's a lot of people, well, 
There's there's some people who who believe in the separation of money and state. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think it is interesting that it yeah, in terms of what the public would believe that yeah, in terms of more radical people can understand. Okay, I can imagine a world without so-called public schools and thing. And yeah, for, I think for a lot having the money and banking just all be privately produced. Well, I think Bitcoin helps with that. Whether whatever one thinks of it, that's just at least introducing the idea. Sort of like, uh, you know, the, the the Uber and whatnot was a good way of getting regular people to understand. Oh wait, maybe those taxi medallions aren't so necessary after all to protect the public, you know, from rogue cab drivers. So I think that yes, that is an area. And whereas you're right, the the last bastion of <laughs> state influence, people are going to say is oh, the military and the courts. But money money is close, I think, on that end. But you're right, a lot of free market economists are willing to at least dabble in these areas and not not be too afraid of sounding crazy. Do you think, Bob, that without Menger and Mises and Rothbard, there, there potentially is no Bitcoin? Um, yeah. So I, I don't claim to be a full expert in terms of the development of all this stuff. Certainly there's uh, like the, what's it called? A cypherpunk um Th- that that group there was a group of you know sort of radical people that yes they what motivated them to work on these things and to try to come up with a decentralized currency it wasn't just a technical problem it, it really was an issue of freedom so i i think one could certainly make the case or at the very least it accelerated it right that in other words it, this is why smart people were working in some of these areas um uh, i i think that's entirely true well, certainly in the Bitcoin online community, there's quite a bit of movement and talk about Austrian economics. But if you go back and read Satoshi's white paper, that's very much a technical document that's not getting into you know sort of the uh, the theoretical ideas behind it or anything. So it's interesting to consider. And you know, on the topic of Bitcoin, I just want to mention something that's found in the first part of this book. It's divided into three parts, but in the first part, he's talking about, you know, we don't really care about the money supply per se. It can adjust. Prices can adjust. What we care about is sort of the quality and origins of money. So what do you think about this idea that Bitcoin has a fixed supply? Because there are a lot of critics of that. Perhaps Rothbard would be a critic, but I certainly think people like Larry White and George Selgin might be a critic of the idea of fixing on the supply side, just the, the ultimately the total amount of money. Oh, by the way, just in what we were talking about before, um, so Michael Goldstein, uh, he has a he gave a talk. I don't know if he wrote it up as a paper, but uh, on that issue of I think he gets something like the radical roots of Bitcoin or something like that. If people want to Google that, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. I, I was at a Bitcoin conference and he presented that, m- making the case of what you were saying, Jeff, that. Like, hey, it's you know we should really credit these radical decentralization. You know, people who wanted political liberty are instrumental in understanding where Bitcoin came from. So, you know, I I can't say what the counterpoint would be to that to his case, but he does make that case. So, as far as what you're asking now about Bitcoin, so yes, the hitting the limit of 21 million people who are concerned about, well, gee, wouldn't that be quote deflationary, which is a bit of a misnomer. It's more like it, it wouldn't inflate or deflate in terms of the stock of money. Um, I I have not read Selgin or White talking about Bitcoin per se recently, but th- what they might do, Jeff, is so you're, you're right in terms of their f- monetary framework. They want an elastic currency to be able to handle, you know, if there's an increase, if there's a shock to demand and more people want to hold money, then in their view, that's going to lead to painful price deflation. And so that's why we need to have um, an elastic currency or system. 
But if they have banks issuing claims on Bitcoin, that might be how they get around it. So in other words, if they had fractional reserve banking where the underlying base money is Bitcoin, just like in their framework with gold, it's not that the way their their system works is the ability to have you know gold to physically get produced. It's banks issue paper claims or electronic claims on the same amount of gold bars that are in the vault. So I I think that might be how they would handle that. So I I think they're generally, or at least Larry White, I think is a fan of Bitcoin or at least the concept of it. And I think that's how he would reconcile it with his framework. I mentioned this book is segregated into three sections. The first section is basically money in a free society, what money would look like or has looked like arising as a commodity in the marketplace, as something that's required so that we can get past barter and deal with each other in a way that we can sort of reasonably calculate using numbers, um, you know, what we want to do in terms of trade. And then the middle section is government meddling with money, all the different ways that uh, central banks have gotten involved and Treasury departments have gotten involved in the production and, and I guess regulation of money. And then the third part is a really awesome, fascinating, short uh, synopsis of money's history. And you know, he goes through gold, he goes through the you know uh, states and sovereigns and the classical gold standard, and then all the things that came up with Roosevelt in the 30s, and then uh, you know prior to that World War One, and then after that World War Two and Bretton Woods. So it's really in in a hundred some pages, Bob. I mean, this is. This is, you know, everything you would need to know, I would argue, to know way more than 99% of the people out there walking around about money. It probably more than 80% of the economists, too. Hmm. So, yeah, this is great. And let me just give a plug for this, um, you know, for the because I remember when I was younger, I the stuff about, oh, gee, there's the classical gold standard, and then there's the gold exchange standard, and there's this and that, and Bretton Wood, and I don't, do I need to, and, and I... I would say it, it actually really is interesting to get into that stuff and to just put in the effort that I, th- I think you will have a much better command of even just standard monetary theory if you go and look at some of these institutional details. And also it's it's history and it's fun and you can see the connections with you know wars and things like that. It's no coincidence that the powers went off the gold, the classical gold standard for World War One, you know, things like that. So it's it, it, it really it does tie things together. And Rothbard is a master of all these different literatures and is a fantastic writer and can just weave it all together in this compelling narrative. Well, he's also an historian, I think, as much as, as anyone in economics uh, for in his era. Uh, I wanted to, to touch on something that's in part one. And a lot of the stuff in here, I think, is going to be familiar to our listeners. Money arising in gold and silver coins and debasement by kings and, and this sort of thing. Um, the desire, as I mentioned, to get beyond barter and how important money is arising as a, you know, earlier as a commodity. Uh, and he, he gets through all this without mentioning a lot of historical or technical economics. But I thought it was, it was, it was fascinating to touch upon... Uh, as Rothbard does, this idea of hoarding money, you know, that somehow if money's just sitting there in cash balances in your bank account, it's not conferring any benefit on society. And there's an analogy here to to the Bitcoin community, which talks about hodling, you know, just buy your Bitcoin and keep it. Um, And there's, I guess, in mainstream economics, there's a a deep concern and a fixation on this idea of velocity of money. And you know, money bouncing around between people, and Rothbard thinks this is nonsense. So, how should we think about hoarding, and how should we think about 
why people hold cash balances. The way a lot of even economists, but certainly the the general public tend to think about money is, oh, you know, like a a rich person, how does he contribute to society? Well, because he goes out and spends money and that causes, you know, creates jobs or things like that. And that that's the idea that they have in mind. And like you say, Jeff, that if you're a little bit more technically minded, you say, oh, so it's the velocity of circulation. So it's like the dollar bills moving from hand to hand. That's what generates prosperity. And uh, and so in that framework, then somebody who's a hoarder, somebody who just g- sells stuff to obtain money and then just puts it you know, in his in his vault or you know, piles gold coins up in the basement like Scrooge McDuck, that's the most antisocial thing you can imagine. And so what Rothbard points out is that, well, no, in terms of the the sort of analysis that Austrians favor in terms of like just modeling or explaining like the equilibrium price of a unit of money, for example, the way you do it is just supply and demand. And so the, you know, the supply of money is what it is. It's again, at a given time, there's a certain stock of money. And then the demand for it is what? It's the demand to hold it. And so at any given point, every piece of money in the economy is in someone's possession, right? So there's no such thing as money, quote, in circulation. At any moment, you can identify the owner of any particular unit of money. And, and so what happens when you buy something, it's not that the money is in circulation, it's that you're just making an exchange, right? That it was the money was in your cash balance and now you make a trade and now it's in somebody else's cash balance. And so they had to be willing to accept the money. And so that's the, the way you go through it. And then when you just analyze, like, you know, why do people want to hold money? Well, it's because it confers services. That's, that's why you would accept it in a trade. And so you want, you have utility from money being in your possession. and once you start thinking of it like that, which again is a perfectly acceptable way, and this isn't some like idiosyncratic Austrian way of doing it. You know, Mises got this approach, you know, incorporated from other people as well. Like this is standard stuff. Um, once you think of it that way, you realize that the distinction between a so-called hoarder and a normal person is just one of degree. There's not a qualitative difference. It's a hoarder just means somebody who wants to carry larger cash balances than the rest of us think are normal. It's it kind of like just even putting aside the issue of money, just in general, you know, so you deride your neighbors, oh, that guy's a hoarder, by which you mean, oh, look, he doesn't throw stuff. Well, he does throw some things out and your house isn't completely bereft of any items whatsoever. You have cans of tuna fish in your pantry. You've got toilet, more toilet paper than you need that day in your house. So you're a hoarder too. And so when you deride your neighbor as a hoarder, all you just mean is he has larger stockpiles of these things than I do. So it's the same thing with, with money. You have everyone listening to us right now probably has some cash in their wallet or, you know, in their piggy bank or something under the mattress, what have you. So you're hoarding cash as well. Isn't that antisocial? And the, the point is no prices and so forth can adjust. And, the mere act of spending money doesn't make us richer. It's producing things. That's what adds wealth to society. Right. And there's, I think there's both a personal benefit and a societal benefit to this. And there's there's some literature out there for people uh, – like there's a famous Hutt article called The Yield for Money Held. Uh, might link to that. We might also link to a Hoppe article about Hutt on that same subject. And as Hoppe points out, 
Well, first of all, whenever uncertainty rises, the demand for cash balances increases. We've seen that markedly since COVID. People weren't sure about their jobs. People weren't sure about relocation, all kinds of things. So if you look, there's actually data out there available from big money market funds like Fidelity and Vanguard that show people have increased their cash balances as a result of the uncertainties caused by COVID. And so uh, as Hoppe points out, look, you know, if somebody prefers having $45,000 cash in a, you know, a money market fund to going out and buying a brand new Ford F-150, then they see some value or utility to them to being liquid and be, maybe being able to move and, and write a deposit on or a down payment on a house or a down payment on an apartment. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that the individual might effectively choose and to buy money or hold money, you, you might say, versus spending it. So there's, there's clearly utility there. And we see this with respect to uncertainty. People are doing this even when interest rates are on these kinds of accounts are sub 1%. And relative to inflation, they're probably negative. You're losing money, but people still want to have some cash balances. But another point Hoppe makes, Bob, is that by pulling cash out of the economy, you know, you're not circulating it, even though that's a misnomer, and not buying that Ford F-150, you're effectively increasing the purchasing power of other people's money because it's 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 not out there uh, in you know having an inflationary effect. Yeah, exactly. And I'm glad you brought that up because that was a point I meant to make and I just forgot um, that. If anything, you know, so let's like imagine the so-called worst case scenario is there's some, you know, rich, cranky old man up on the hill living in his mansion. And all he does is he provides goods and services either personally or, you know, through the enterprises that he owns to the rest of society. And they give him cash for those services and goods. And he just keeps piling up $20 bills, $100 bills in his basement. And then he never spends it. He just dies. And that's it. We never hear from the guy again. When you think about it, what that means is he's busting his butt his whole life, giving valuable things to people in their own mind, right? According to their own judgments, they like these things. That's why they're handing over green pieces of paper for it. And then what does he, in a sense, siphon out of society in return? Nothing. He just has all these largely useless you know, green pieces of paper or that didn't take many real resources to physically produce in exchange for all the cars and TVs and whatever else his factories produce for everybody. And yet, the way the normal framework operates, we would deride that guy as being a monster who ripped everybody else off. When no, if anything, it would be the other way around. So that just again underscores what you're saying. Hoppe's, you know, one of his points was that if anything, you know, e either you just say, hey, they're all voluntary trades, and it is what it is, and end of story. But if you really did want to push it and say, but no, in some sense, you know, as somebody really siphoning things away from the rest of society, the person who just keeps selling real goods and services to accumulate money is, if anything, a benefactor to everybody else, if you want to think of it. So it's it's a little bit dangerous to go down that path, but if you were going to, that's the way you'd have to come down on it. Not that the person who's hoarding money is ripping everybody else off. If anything, it's the opposite. And of course, virtually no one's hoarding physical cash. Exactly. <laughs> I, right. mean, I mean, the amount of physical cash that's that's in people's safe deposit boxes or under a mattress or a, or a home safe, I suspect, is tiny, even relative to the fairly tiny amount of physical cash which exists relative to digital you know, blips in, in, in your bank account somewhere. And so I, I assure you, if you have a Vanguard uh, money market fund, there's not a pile of cash sitting somewhere with your name on it. It's uh, it's 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 exists strictly in the digital space. But I'm curious about this idea of hardness and soundness. You know, people in Ron Paul circles used to talk about sound money, and I know 
Bitcoiners like to talk about the ultimate hardness of money. Saifedean Amos in his great book, The Bitcoin Standard, uh, talks about this at length, and he relates it to stock to flow, and we don't necessarily need to get into that. But could you give us sort of a quick and dirty Bob Murphy definition of, of what's, what sound money or hard money, what that means? So I think the the hardness has to do with, I think, where that term originally came from. You know, it's like etymologically, is that the word I want? Is the distinction between paper money and commodity money like gold and silver, right? So that, you know, the hard, like actual coins made out of physical gold and silver, that's hard money. Whereas government just printing up pieces of paper, they can just crank those things out and there's really no limit. And so, you know, which which money do you feel safer with? Which is going to retain its value over time better measured in terms of purchasing power? Clearly the quote hard money. So I think that's now why when we talk about hardness of money, that's what we mean. So let the, the constraints on the ability of the creators of the money or whatever the system is that produces it to, you know, what, what are the constraints on that? And so when it comes to Bitcoin, they're mathematically speaking, so long as, you know, they don't change the protocol, which would be hard to do given it's a decentralized system, the most they're ever going to be are but just about 21 million, right? And so that in a sense, and I have endorsed this claim that, you know, in terms of the attributes of money that you might like, if to the extent that hardness is one of them, then Bitcoin is even preferable if it could be adopted as the money for the world than gold or silver. Because even if we all switched over to using physical gold and say, oh, yeah, see, governments can't just print gold, so that's good. Right. But an asteroid could crash or, you know, we could go explore and find some asteroid that has a million billion tons of gold on it. Or scientists, you know, they they know in terms of the chemistry where like that we can transform baser metals into gold at this point like that we know how to do it technologically it's just it would be more expensive than it would be worth right now but that could change down the road you know in terms of like the star trek the next generation thing when they you know <laughs> captain picard has the thing make him a cup of royal gray tea if you could just say give me a, a bar of gold and it could just assemble it like that then gold wouldn't be a good money anymore wouldn't be hard anymore so in that sense bitcoin because it's got that mathematical constraint is harder um as far as sound money um, Mises liked to use that term, and he he placed it in the context of the classical liberal tradition. And he said what what sound money meant to the liberals, it was the same sort of thing as like a um, like free speech or the or bill of rights. That it was a way to protect the average person from the government being able to debase the currency. And so, just like you had a bill of rights that you know said these are things government can't do to you. Likewise, sound money meant government is not allowed to debase the currency. And so that, for example, and practically speaking, that's the function of the classical gold standard. So by saying, no, no, the government must be prepared to redeem its own issued currency and a fixed weight of gold or silver, that's going to tie its hands. Just like, you know, to say, oh, the government, before they can come into your property, they need a warrant, that kind of thing. Well, and of course, kings and sovereigns have been debasing currency for a long time. Uh, seigniorage is the uh, ability to... Uh, produce money and nominate it at, at, you know, with a higher denomination than the cost of producing it, right? I mean, this is, all this stuff has historical precedent and Rothbard goes through it. You know, but when you look at the title of this book and you mentioned the term debasement, I think a lot of us in Austrian libertarian circles have this sort of cranky idea, well, government's debasing our dollar and this and that, and, and it's really hard for old people and savers. And I think that's all true. Uh, but uh, understanding this, Ron Paul used to say on the campaign trail, 
Since the institution of the Federal Reserve, the dollar has lost something like 97% of its purchasing power. And I know that there's a lot of folks on uh, the what we might call the Keynesian or uh, uh, demand side left, people in MMT circles say, well, no, no, that's a trope because you would have been paid interest over the years for all these dollars you were just holding. So they wouldn't just be worth the same as when you got them. And you know what really matters is what does an hour of labor buy? It's not how much you get paid, three bucks an hour or 20. You know, it's, it's what you can go get with that sort of average pay of an hour of, uh, let's say, manual labor or something like that. And you actually got into this a little bit with uh, David Andofato, who's an economist at the Fed on one of your podcasts. I thought it was an excellent show, a fascinating show. And he pushed back on Ron's statement about the dollar being so debased uh, since its inception, or excuse me, since the inception of the Fed. So can you comment on this? And, you know, let's, let's have his argument as well. Okay, sure. So it's funny when you said that about the debasement, I realized that's yet another thing where I think the term comes, you know, from the olden days of the just the phys- physical processes. So yes, back in the day when we were using, let's say, gold or silver actual coins, what the sovereign would do was people would you know collect taxes in terms of the original coins, then melt them down, and then pour in a baser metal. And then recoin more physical coins, but still, like you say, stamp them to be as if it were the original thing. And so that's the way in which the ruler could transform a given number of coins into a larger number and then try to spend them and, you know, and originally to be able to get more stuff in the community before prices have adjusted. So that's, I think, where the, the term debasement came from, from the idea of putting in a baser metal. Um and so, right. So, yeah, I was a popular talking point that Ron Paul would bring up just to say, hey, since 1913, since the founding of the Fed, the dollar has lost, again, depending on how you measure it, whatever, something like 97% of its purchasing power. You know, so just say, like, what, uh, you know, it, it would, they would, what it took like five cents to buy in 1913 would now take you a dollar, that kind of thing. So, um, so what Andal Fottle, and, and he was just echoing the concerns of a lot of people who thought at best that that statistic was misleading, or some people would even argue it, oh, worse, that's just totally wrong, and what the heck's Ron Paul talking about, is is they were saying, well, okay, yeah, it is true that the prices of you know bread and gasoline and whatever have risen dramatically since 1913, and yes, it is true that we can blame the Fed for that if you want, because they've created so many more dollars, and that's what's pushing up the price level. But by the same token, look what happened to nominal wage rates, right? That the average worker only made whatever, such and such a small amount per hour. I don't know what the number is back then, whereas now people earn $25 an hour or whatever. And, you know, $25 an hour, you would have been very wealthy back in 1913. And so it's, you know, it kind of all washes out is what they're what they're getting at. And so you can't blame the Fed for the rise in prices if you're not going to simultaneously credit the Fed for making your wage, you know, your paycheck higher than it would have been in 1913 or than it would have been if we had stuck on the classical gold standard. So um, I, get, I mean, that's correct as far as it goes. And certainly if if people didn't realize that, well, then they need to know that to, to not, you know, just be looking at one half of the story. But on the other hand, it's the, that glib response leads you to believe that it really is just a wash. And it's just a matter of, oh, yeah, it's kind of like the units changed over time. You know, it, it, like if we just started quoting things in pennies instead of dollars, we wouldn't say, oh, wow, purchasing powers dropped by, you know, a fact 99 times or something. You would you would just say, no, it's a different unit. So if you just say, oh, yeah, the 2021 dollars different from 1913 dollar, who cares? It's just how we're measuring. 
that's misleading too, because as I pointed out when in the discussion with Andalfadel, when those new dollars, so clearly Ron Paul's statistic indicates that, wait a minute, a bunch more new dollars have been created since 1913 and that's pushed up prices. And then when you realize that the process by which that happened showers benefits on a small group of people, namely the ones that create this money, either the Fed itself or if you're counting you know, the, the banking system to the extent that they can pyramid dollars on top of that, you can argue that they create the money as well, broadly defined. Well, then those groups have benefited all along from this inflation, meaning the, you know, the creation of new money. And then the, the statistic that Ron Paul cited is just to get an, you know, an indication of how much of this has been occurring. And so let me just real quick, just to put it in simple terms, Jeff, if you had a really good laser printer and you started cranking out hundred dollar bills that were authentic looking enough that you could go around town spending it and you wouldn't get caught you clearly that benefits you personally and that would tend to raise prices in the community. And so if somebody found out about what you were doing and said, Hey, you're a counterfeiter that's making the rest of us poor. You're ripping us off all those Ferraris you have in that huge mansion you live in. Now you got, not because you worked and contributed, but because you were cranking out hundred dollar bills in your basement, you basically stole from us. And it would be silly for the person just to say, no, I mean, the increase in dollars just, I mean, you, you actually have a higher paycheck now because of me. You should be thanking me, or at least that's a wash. And prices and interest rates, they all adjust, so it's fine. That would be crazy. And so there's nothing economically that's different from changing, you know, the counterfeiter from being a guy cranking $100 bills in his basement to making it the Federal Reserve and the banking system. You could argue that ethically it's different because of, you know, the legitimacy of the state or whatever, if that's the route you want to go. But in terms of the economics of it, if you would agree a private counterfeiter can't just glibly dismiss it and say, well, no, you're getting paid more now because of me, then likewise, neither can you excuse the Fed that way. You know, Bob, at the at the beginning of your answer there, you said, on the other hand, <laughs> who, that, that's an economist statement, right? Who is the president who wanted a, a damn one-armed economist? I think it was Truman. Was that I Ike? it was Truman. Truman, yeah. I think it was Truman. But, you know, when you bring up this counterfeiting example, which, you know, look – you know what our opponents say. Oh, that's simplistic. You know, but but as a a learning tool or as an approach to to, to understanding underlying principles, I think it's it's very very important. So, a lot of the second part of this book is about what governments and central banks do to to sort of interfere in the process and to effectively counterfeit. I, inflation is not something that just happens and comes along like the weather. It's an express policy. You know, there's a target, for example, by the the U.S. Fed to to have about two percent annual inflation. I mean, that's that's a policy, folks. And you use the rule of seventy two, and you say, well, gosh, every thirty six years, prices are going to double. So this, you know, this isn't just uh, understanding animal spirits or something. There's there are technical elements to this. So. You know, part two, Bob, there's there's a lot of takeaways. Rothbard gets into fractional reserve and free banking. I'd like to at least touch on that. But but let's start with Gresham's Law and metals and coins. I think a lot of people are familiar with Gresham's Law. They've heard of it. They understand uh, that it's part of, of understanding money, but maybe we're a little fuzzy on it or we misstate it a little bit. Sometimes we do like we do with Say's Law. So give us your version of Gresham's law and, and why it matters. Okay, sure. So the the popular rendition of it is bad money drives out good. 
And then, you know, guys like Rothbard and other Austrians, they they take pains to say, OK, yes, there's a there's a uh, a real phenomenon that that glib phrase is corresponding to. And it's very important for us to understand that. But strictly speaking, no, that statement is not correct, that in a free market, it's not true that bad money would drive out good. Just like in a free market, it's not true that bad cars drive out good cars and you know, all the cars on the road are falling apart because, you know, it just it doesn't make sense. You know, it's not profitable for a company to make a good quality car that's reliable because it would go out of business. No, that's that doesn't make sense. In all other arenas of of the free market, quality drives out you know inferior products. At least you know in terms of if their pricing is similar. And so, likewise with money, if you had privately produced monies, whether gold and silver coins or what have you, then good quality money would drive out bad quality money. People would adopt this, the money that held its purchasing power that was hard to counterfeit and so forth. So what it what it means, though, where that phrase comes from, is that when government enacts price controls um, that, that force merchants to accept certain types of money, even though the it's not in their immediate interest to do so, then everybody pays in the effectively overvalued money and they hoard the you know the undervalued money, and so that's the sense in which what what they mean is in a regime like that. And I'll give a, a specific example just in case people don't understand those abstract terms. But the the point is what ends up happening if the government's making it such that you're allowed to buy stuff and force people to accept money that actually is being overvalued relative to what everyone really thinks it's worth. Well, then whenever you bought, bought stuff, you would pay with the money that you don't like that much. You would get rid of it because the other guy is effectively forced to accept it. And everybody's trying to do that. So everyone's trying to get rid of this under this overvalued money and nobody would spend the undervalued money. And so the, a, a quick analogy or, or example of that phenomenon would be that the modern listeners could understand if, if you've ever stumbled upon like a quarter from the year 1940, well, you know that even though it's stamped as 25 cents, the the silver content in that physical item is worth way more than 25 cents right now. And so it would be silly for you to go use that in a vending machine or, or something to try to go buy or, you know, you go, you buy something at the gas station and the guy says, oh, yeah, it's a buck and a quarter. You would be silly to put down a one dollar bill in that particular quarter because it's it's worth way more than 25 cents. In contrast, what you do pay with are the silver discs, or the, the, I should say the discs, that don't have silver content in them anymore, and which actually make, you know, cost less than 25 cents worth of metal in order to produce. Because merchants are not allowed right now to say, to say oh, this is $1.25, but you got to pay me in quarters that are pre-1965. You can't do that. That right now, a, quote, legal U.S. quarter is is valid for paying somebody 25 cents. All right, so that's... Um, it, well, and strictly speaking, it, it comes down to the, um, you know, like the legal payment of debts and things like that. So technically, yeah, I guess you probably could put up a sign saying I only accept silver. But in general, I think the, the listener gets the idea I'm getting across here that um, just like you would never pay, buy something with a quarter that had actual silver content. Likewise, historically, when the coins really were made of gold and silver, and then there was so-called bimetallism standards where the government might say that, oh, here's the legal ratio that a dollar is defined as a certain grant number of grains of silver or, or or and gold, well, then the market price of gold versus silver would fluctuate over time. 
And so that's what economists would say, that governments thought they were enforcing a bimetallic standard by defining their currencies in both silver and gold. But in practice, it was an alternating monometallic standard that at any given time, the actual market exchange rate between gold and silver was not exactly the ratio that the legislators had pinned down earlier with their statutes. And so at any given time, either the gold or the silver coins were over or undervalued. And then those would be the only ones, quote, in circulation. Everybody else would sit on the coins that were not properly being valued by the you know the government's uh, requirement as to what the, the currency would be defined as. So what do you think Gresham Law means for us today? People are worried about the dollar. They see all the monetary and fiscal stimulus happening. That's good. That's why I caught myself a little bit because – so there was a period you know, with FDR coming in and seizing everybody's gold – among other, besides physically taking it, they also even prohibited what were called gold clauses. So you couldn't even have a long-term contract with somebody to say, like, hey, I'm going to rent your land for the next 10 years, and each year I'm going to pay you the equivalent in dollars of what one ounce of gold is at that time. Like, you weren't even allowed to have that in your contracts because they wanted to get people to stop thinking in terms of gold and to just think in terms of dollars. And so... In a regime like that, you know, then you could definitely see that the gold would, would you know, would say in people's possession they would it wouldn't circulate as the money, and people would just use the the dirty paper dollars. Um, so in our kind of so, fortunately, those sorts of restrictions right now aren't so prevalent, and I think technically, you know, merchants could insist on like, hey, the, what's the price of this product? Well, it's we go look at the spot price of gold that day and you got to Yeah, you can pay me in dollars for it, but the price is going to be whatever, you know, one tenth of an ounce of gold is that day or something. Like, I think you could legally do that. It'd be cumbersome, but you could do it, especially with smartphones and stuff. It wouldn't be so hard. But if they were to start cracking down on that. So I think, Jeff, to answer your question, if the dollar really did start crashing, um, and then certain merchants try to respond in that way, like to have their prices be a function of, you know, tied to something real that, yeah, you can always pay me in dollars, but my prices quoted in dollars are going to adjust based on today's exchange rate with gold or with Bitcoin or whatever. If the government wanted to stop that and came in and then put controls in place and said, no, you're not allowed to do that, then I think that's where we would start to see, you know, the issue of, of Gresham's law, in which case people would just be paying with these $100 bills that everybody thought were, you know, a really terrible thing to, to hang on to. They'd just be running around town trying to get rid of these things, whereas you would keep your gold and silver coins and Bitcoin and whatnot. Well, we've seen real-world examples of this. When Zimbabwe was in facing hyperinflation, people clamored for and held dollars, you know, clandestinely or openly. And and even today, we see people in in Zimbabwe, quickly using euro and dollar, and supposedly the vendors there can make calculations in their head almost on the spot uh, b- between these currencies. So you know, I mean, we we do understand that that um, even in the real world, people try to get into better currencies. Exactly, and so that that shows why the glib statement of Gresham's law as bad money drives out good is not correct. That, like you say, in in countries where their money all of a sudden takes a real bad turn, and that's an awful money. It's not that people don't go into better monies. Of course, they, that's the natural thing to do. And so that's why you have to realize that it's not just that there's good and bad monies competing for people's uses in order for what Gresham's law is describing to come into play is there have to be price controls that the government puts in place to force people to say, no, no, you're not allowed to uh, 
you know, discount this particular currency a certain amount. So in a sense, it's like putting a floor under the price of the currency. So when he brings up central banks in part two is obviously the biggest intervener in what ought to be a market commodity in his view. You know, he says, well, first of all, central banks remove the checks on inflation and you know, then central banks direct the inflation. So he he's viewing central banks as you know, their their entire reason for being, their entire reason for coming into existence is to permit and promote inflationism to help fund government. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the reason we have central banks in the I guess John Disrothbardian view. Right. And I love this part of, of the sort of Austrian framework, or at least the Roth, Misesian Rothbardian framework, is that, yeah, it's it's not merely that, oh, gee, you know, in retrospect, is it possible that the Federal Reserve has contributed to macro instability and we can run some regression? That No, the, the whole rationale, what ostensibly the central bank is supposed to do, it's the exact opposite of what it does in practice and what its original motivations were. So, so yes, in a genuine free market... Um, what, you know what? What is it that and Mises has you know discussions of this? You know, if if one bank tried to inflate too much and you know tried to have a a lower the re, reserve ratio, let's say, than its peers, it could temporarily gain an advantage through that, right? And but the problem is in a from the bank's point of view, in a system of genuine free banking where you know there's just there's no special privileges granted it's just contract enforcement and the government treats banks the way they treat you know pizza parlors and cab companies and whatever there's nothing special because it's a bank um the the bank that issues more notes than it has re- actual money in the vault if it does that more aggressively than its peers then through the inner bank clearing operations at the end of the week or whatever when the banks all set up with each other that expanding bank will have its reserves drained into the vaults of the other banks that were more conservative. And that's the the, the immediate check and why no one bank can inflate more rapidly than its peers in a, in a decentralized system. So how would you get around that if you wanted to promote extensive inflation is you would have a central bank that comes along and says, oh, we'll be a lender of last resort. So if you're any individual bank and you get caught with your pants down and you have a credit crunch a liquidity crisis, we will come and bail you out. And so even by its very nature, you know, to be calling it a lender of last resort, I mean, that was the original rationale of why the Fed was founded. It wasn't to promote macro stability. It was to, um, you know, prevent these crises and in, in financing and credit creation. Uh, you can just think through, once you understand how a, a, a decentralized market-based banking system would work and what would limit inflation, then you see the central bank by its very nature acts to relax those constraints. So it allows the banking system as a whole to inflate by removing one of the most obvious immediate competitive checks on rampant inflation. Yeah. And and I can't help but think that the, the flip side of all that is that it's enabled rampant government debt to pile up over these decades. Right. Exactly. Because what is it that the banking system does? And, and, and this is kind of the symbiotic relationship. Why would the political system allow the bankers to benefit from this bank that's, you know, it's a, we can, I don't know if you want to get into this yet, but you know, the, it is true that technically the Federal Reserve is privately owned, even though it's not merely a private company. And so what, you know, what, why would the legislature have gone along with this? Well, because the thing that the central bank buys when it creates money out of thin air nowadays is largely government debt. And so, yes, that allows 
the government to be the initial beneficiary of that newly created money. So going back to the discussion about Ron Paul and the debasement of the currency since 1913, and we said that, yeah, when they create those new dollars, the first recipients or the early creators are the ones who primarily benefit from it, just like the guy cranking $100 bills in his basement. He's definitely benefiting from that arrangement. If the government's the one that gets to have the Fed effectively monetize its debt, well, then the government benefits from that. In other words, it can borrow on much better terms knowing the Fed is waiting in the wings to create new money out of thin air to soak up those bonds. I want to touch just on this fractional reserve versus full reserve question, because Rothbard does give us at least the broad strokes on this. And of course, he talks about, well, there would be warehouse banks, in effect, holding your money, and they might issue you a paper receipt that's denominated, and those receipts may, in fact, trade, but they would be fully backed by the underlying uh, presumably gold asset held in this warehouse bank. And then he gets into the fractional reserve system. And, you know, that's a huge subject. That's really a subject for a different day. There's there's all kinds of arguments back and forth on that. But I just want you to, to address one argument, Bob, which is namely that, you know, Murray points out that, you know, regular credit, there's, let's say, a, a lender who has money and the ownership or the control of that money transfers from the lender to the borrower. So when, let's say, a business makes a loan to an individual or another business, that's what happens. And there's no increase in the money supply. And Lou Rockwell actually makes a great point that that this is the noble function of pawn shops, that they extend credit to people, uh, you know, people of, of uh, lesser means oftentimes uh, without increasing the money supply. But there's a difference between credit in in, the, in this sense, which me, which excuse me, Rothbard views as a salutary function in society, and then fractional reserve credit, where there's an inflationary element, and they're they're creating uh, credit that is not backed by any existing money. Right, and this is important because a lot of people, when they dip their toe into the so-called fractional reserve banking debate, they're confused because they're saying, "Well, wait a minute, how can?" How can banks even operate if they're not allowed? You know, when I deposit my money in my checking account, I know that the bank lends that out to somebody else. I mean, if they didn't, how would loans happen? Like, isn't isn't that the function of banks? Is there a credit intermediary and they take the funds from depositors and, and savers and give them to borrowers? And I don't, you know, if if, if they had to keep 100% of my money sitting in the vault, well, then how could that even work? And so, as you say, Jeff, the way Rothbard explains this is he said, well, there's two different things that banks can do for you. And right now, those have been sort of merged as if they're the, a sole function. And so, yes, in terms of let's just call a checking account, they can just be warehouses for your money, for safekeeping and for you know convenience for you to be able to spend it at different places without having to physically transfer it. So you go put $1,000 in a checking account and it's sitting in a vault and then you can go around town writing checks or swiping your debit card. And then the bank just transfers control of that money or ownership of that money from your name to the name of whoever the other the, you know, account holder is that gets that that you authorize the transfer to, and that's fine. And you could have hundred percent reserves. And how would the bank pay for that? It would charge you a service fee. You know, how how does any business stay in, afloat? And so that's how it would work. Now, the credit intermediary function, banks could also do that. And so, if you wanted to earn interest, so you, you of course wouldn't earn interest on a pure hundred percent reserve checking account. You'd have to pay the bank for that service. But if instead you were willing to part with your money, you didn't want to have it immediately available and you wanted to earn interest, you could do that too. And banks probably would perform that function. So the bank sells you a CD at 5% interest. So you give them $1,000 today. They give you this legal, legally binding document that, that says the bank owes you 
$1,050 in 12 months time. And then they take that thousand and they go lend it out at 7%. And, you know, they have their uh, underwriters and whatnot, loan officers to make sure it's a good credit risk and blah, blah, blah. And hopefully if it works out, they make money and that's how the bank earns its spread because it's paying you 5% and it's getting 7%. And that's fine. But as you say, Jeff, that is not an inflationary process. You can't go around town buying groceries with a CD from the bank. You have relinquished control of that money. You don't think it's your $1,000 anymore once you buy the CD the way the 1000 in your checking account you still think is yours. And so that's the problem with fractional reserve banking, at least according to some Austrians in the Rothbardian tradition, is that if you if the bank takes 200 out of your checking account and lends that out to somebody at 7%, well, now you still think you have the 1000 and the person who just borrowed that money thinks he's got 200 So there's a sense in which the community now has $200 extra in it, whereas that doesn't happen under pure, you know, just the, the original scenario we talked about where you relinquish control of the money, you know it's not yours, you're sitting on a CD for a year. Well, I'm sure that when you go open a checking account in your, you know, the local chain of some national bank, there's a bunch of fine print and they do in fact disclose that you're they're ba you're basically becoming, you know, making them a short-term callable loan, but uh, that that's a different story. Um Bob, I want to wrap up by just talking about the end of the book, which is part 4, the monetary breakdown of the West. I want to recommend to people, this just goes in the hardcover anyway, from page 97 to about page 119. So in, in, in 20 pages, 20 odd pages, you're getting an unbelievable history of, you know, the early gold standard on the, you know, the political and the political economy of, of historical political economy of money here. Uh, you know, you're going to learn about the gold standard. You're going to learn about uh, what, what happened to the gold standard. You're going to learn about Roosevelt in the 30s. You're going to learn about Bretton Woods after World War II. So really something. But there were a couple of things, Bob, I thought were worth pointing out. First of all, he takes a shot at the Friedmanite monetarists at page 106 who say, well, we should just have, you know, cut all ties to gold completely and issue currency uh, willy-nilly via fiat, but also allow it to fluctuate freely with respect to all other fiat currencies. So in a sense, uh, the monetarists, the Freemites have gotten their way. I mean, that's effectively what has happened, although there have been some pegs between central banks, you know, pegging their currency to the dollar or the euro. But for the most part, I when I read this, it, Bob, it sounds like that's the monetarists have prevailed. But I did check with Joe Salerno. Of course, this was not something he wrote in the first version of this book in the early 1960s. He hadn't developed uh, this antipathy for a Freemanite monetary policy until later. So this came in one of the one of the later five volumes of this book. So I'm just curious, Bob. You know, where do you think st things stand right now with uh, Freemanite monetarists? Okay, great question. Yeah. So let me. Um... Mentioned. So this is some an area where my thinking has moved, and this is tying back to what I was saying, Jeff, earlier in this discussion when I was encouraging people to, you know, d get over the the hesitancy to to read about history and whatever. This is some interesting stuff, but because also it will shed light on just your understanding of monetary theory. Is that yeah? I, when I was, I don't know, I think in high school maybe, and I was just getting into free market economics, and I actually was reading Friedman before I got into Mises. In one of his essays, it was. I, th I think it was in the seventies where he was advocating for quote, you know, a floating dollar. And he was, and he was explaining why, yes, it's, it's much better that the dollar floats against other currencies. And as opposed to having a locked fixed in exchange rate, just like you wouldn't want the government to declare how much potatoes should be right. You wouldn't want the government to declare how much oil should be per barrel. No, it's floats. That's freedom, baby. And that's efficient. And, it, and then we don't have shortages and surpluses. And to me, that was like so obvious. Oh, yeah, of course you'd want the dollar floating against other currencies. 
in kind of, but as, as Rothbard points out, and now I understand much better, under like a classical gold standard, yes, the British pound and the dollar were fixed in terms of each other. It was it worked out to four dollars and eighty six cents in terms of dollars for a single British pound, but that wasn't because of price controls. It was because the U.S. government would redeem its currency at $20.67 for an ounce of gold. And the British, I think it was 4.25 pounds for an ounce of gold. And so then once, if those, as long as those governments obeyed those rules, well, then it implied that you're just using arithmetic that, oh yeah, it's about $4.86 for a pound. And so it wasn't a price control. Like you could sell it to whoever you wanted. It was not that you'd get fined or thrown in jail. It's just that because the British and American governments would redeem their own currencies according to those ratios, if the actual market exchange rate between the dollar and pound moved too far one way or the other, there would be an arbitrage opportunity and, and you would ship gold from one country to the other, depending on which one was undervalued or overvalued. And so that was the check. And so a country that printed too much, the British government printed too many pounds, then there would be an arbitrage opportunity and gold would flow from Britain to the US. And so if they wanted to maintain their peg, they would have to stop printing so many pounds. And so that's how it worked. And, and so Rothbard's point is that's not coercion. That's not price controls. It's tying the hands of government. And then what's the benefit of that? Well, now, is, what, what was the beauty of the classical gold standard? Everywhere around the civilized world, you knew you didn't have to worry about currency risk. In other words, you could buy product, you could buy inputs from France and Spain, assemble them in Great Britain, and then ship the product to the United States. And so long as all those countries were on the gold standard before World War I, you could just do it all in simple accounting and not have to worry about the units changing. Just like right now in the U.S., it helps that we all use the dollar. It would be harder to do business, especially in long-term planning, if you know each of the 50 states had their own fiat currency and they all floated against each other. That you know, how imagine buying you know oranges in Florida and then selling them in Alaska, not knowing oh what's the Florida Alaska exchange rate going to be next week. So that that's the benefit of these so-called fixed exchange rates, and yeah, the the Friedmanites being fascinated by floating ones, all that really does is just say oh yeah, if if, if governments are going to debase their currencies at different rates, it's better to not have price controls on top of that. And yeah, Rothbard would agree, but he's saying it's even better to not give them the freedom to debase their currencies. And of course, what he'd object to is sort of ceding political control over money. Uh, I think that's that's the point here. But I want to close with this last question, Bob, that at the end of the book here, he's talking about the, the 1971 famous Nixon gold shock, uh, where the, the, the ultimate end of the Bretton Woods agreement, Bretton Woods agreement, to where even foreign central banks could no longer redeem their US dollar holdings for gold. And so a lot of people thought and continue to think, well, that marked the end of gold in terms of its monetary uses. But if we look at since 1971, and certainly since the crash of 2007, 2008, lots and lots of central banks around the world have continued to hold and even increase their holdings of physical gold. I mean, they may not hold it you know, in their vault, they may hold it in the United States or something. But does, does this belie the idea that gold has no monetary use anymore? Do central banks hold gold for a monetary purpose or would they say something else? I'm not sure what they would say about it, but I think everybody knows that, yes, central banks stock up on gold for the same reason that anybody else would. That um, Well, actually, even more so. So they do it in, in sense of protecting their balance sheet yeah, in case there's a, a currency crash, but also 
to reassure uh, the rest of the world that, no, our currency is sound, going back to that notion of sound money, because, look, it's backed up by gold. That, you know, as opposed to, um, you know, other... If you looked at the Federal Reserve's balance sheet and said, oh, wow, geez, they've been printing a lot of dollars. What have they been buying with it? And you see, ooh, there's a bunch of uh, U.S. government treasuries on there and a bunch of mortgage-backed securities. That wouldn't make me feel too comfortable. But if instead I looked and I said, no, they actually have just been loading up on physical gold and storing it in really secure vaults, that would make me trust the dollar a lot more. And so I, I think that you're right, Jeff, that these central banks, by doing this, especially as they're all worried about what's going on and, hey, this system that we're all sort of piling ourselves into here, this this corner into which we're painting ourselves, um, I think that, yeah, they're by them stockpiling gold and silver, uh, or gold, I should say, that they are implicitly admitting that, yes, the gold bugs are right, that in a time of crisis, everybody prefers physical gold to paper currency. Well. That wraps it up. Another show. Maybe we ought to look at what people do rather than what they say when it comes to money or politics or anything else. So I want to thank Bob Murphy for his time this week. I'm going to put some links on the show, ladies and gentlemen, to the great HTML version of this book you can read for free. I'm going to link to that um, article I mentioned from Hoppe, which is talking about uh, Hutt's Yield from Money Held, which is a pretty seminal and famous article within uh, certain economic circles. And I'm also going to link to Bob's show, his podcast, uh, The Bob Murphy Show with the Fed economist David Andolfato, because I was very fascinated by the show and I think all of you would benefit from it. So if you have a little extra time this weekend, I hope you'll, you'll take a look at, at Murray Rothbard's What Has Government Done to Our Money? Because it really is something you could read in just a dedicated hour or two. So, Bob, thanks again. And ladies and gentlemen, have a great weekend. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.